Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of July 2nd, 2021. I'm Charles Hain. I'm a writer at No Film School. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. Managing editor of No Film School, Joe Light. Hi. And writer and filmmaker, Kath Tolentino. Hello. And it is Black Magic theme week at No Film School this week. So the podcast is covering Black Magic topics from beginning to end related to what is going on with theme week. The first thing we're going to talk about is, you know, whenever we have the opportunity, I always like to do sort of educational content around specific problems that come up for filmmakers. The first one is a video we did as part of Black Magic theme week about using the 6K Pro for the night walk and talk. We're going to be following that up talking about the 12K. I feel like there's still a lot of like misinformation about the Blackmagic 12K out there. So we're going to cover that in a little more detail. And then for Ask No Film School, we're going to be answering the question, should I bother learning Fairlight and Fusion? The two tabs that most of you probably are not opening in Resolve. That is this week in Blackmagic Week on the No Film School podcast. Okay, so for our top story this week, when when we got the opportunity to do some stuff for Black Magic Week, the first thing I wanted to do was I wanted to do a night walk and talk. And the reason why is if there's one situation that came up over and over and over as a freelance DP is I would book a low-budget job and there would be a scene in there that would be like a long night walk and talk. Often in the suburbs when I lived in LA, sometimes these are in New York, they're all over movies. They show up all the time, but they're actually really hard on independent budgets, right? Like I can do a walk and talk all day long in like an office because I turn on the fluorescence, I get some base level, I've got the windows, maybe I gel them to make the color temperature match, but like I don't have to light an entire street. And, but you know, as an independent DP, I would always book these things where I was like fighting with production to try and get condors or even scissor lifts or something so I could light up the street. I tell this anecdote too often, but like, I remember this one time all through prep, the director was like, I don't mind if it's dark. I don't mind if it's dark. I don't mind if it's dark. And I kept fighting for more and more and more and more lights. And then I got all the lights I wanted. And we're sitting in dailies and they walk through a pool of darkness for like a second. And the director's like, man, that's really dark. And I was like, you were saying for (laughs) like all of prep, you know, that's, that's the classic of clients. Right. So, you know, night exterior, the director, that was the director. That's like, yeah, that's like, that sucks. Well, I mean, yeah, he he was a nice guy. He was, you know, they ended up being able to cut a very beautiful cut of that scene. They did walk through pools of darkness. That's going to happen. It was a 35 anamorphic job too. So we had to have a lot of light out there in order to have enough on the actors. But you know, there's a great BTS from crash where they're walking along the street and it's ludicrous and his buddy walking around the street. And uh, there's a China ball being held above the camera and stuff like that. Like the night walk and talk is a thing and it's a challenge. And one of the things that I was excited about doing with black magic week is that you want raw out of a night walk and talk because you're usually dealing with a lot of mixed color temperature sources. You know, the real benefit of raw is when you've got like a sodium vapor street light and a weird fluorescent light inside a building and you're mixing all these color temperatures and you want to be able to grade them in post. So you want raw and there's not a lot of cameras that let you shoot raw in a small body. You want stabilization, but like on a low budget, you don't on that particular job, 35 anamorphic job, we had the money for a real steady cam, but like if you don't have the money for a real steady cam, you're on like a Ronin S2 and so, like, if you want internal RAW in a Ronin S2, the only thing you've got is the Blackmagic Pocket 6K. And the nice thing about the Pocket 6K is it also has dual-native ISO. And so dual-native ISO is great because 
that means you can have a higher ISO that's also lower noise. So the, the higher ISO 3200 is still very low noise, shockingly low noise, because it's dual native ISO. And then I was going to do it as can, a walk can you talk. explain? Can you explain to us why raw is so important when you have all those different color temperatures? In so, the call, in the, in the, in the, you, you did say because of what you can do in post, but can you, can you break down for us a little bit of the why, what, 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 how it uh, manifests? So process? raw is wonderful, but not really necessary if everything is perfect, right? Like the big example is like, I'm shooting a sitcom. Raw really doesn't matter because I'm on like, I'm on a controlled stage where everything is painted and tested and every light is the same color temperature and everything is perfect. And so like, do you need raw if you're shooting a sitcom? Probably not because you have so much control of everything happening in front of the lens that everything is already the right color you want it and everything like that. So you're not going to spend a lot of time in posts manipulating it. Raw isn't totally necessary in those kind of situations. Where raw is really useful, especially for independent filmmakers, is in situations where you don't have total control over everything happening in front of the lens. So like, let's say we're doing a night walk and talk and a character is walking and they walk from one color streetlight to another color streetlight. So originally they're under like mercury vapors, which like aren't super common, but they showed up in once upon a time in Hollywood and there's still some in LA and they're like very blue mercury vapors. And then they walk to low pressure sodium vapors, which are like those orange Home Depot parking lot lights, right? Now Mm -hmm. you've got a really nice light on their face. You've got like a beautiful movie light on a stick or something that's lighting their face beautifully. It's a, it's a paper lantern or whatever it is. So their skin is fine, but then the background goes to these weird colors and you want to correct that out. You don't want it to look like they're a normal person against like a weird orange background. You want to color grade that background so it looks nice. It's going to be much easier to do that in RAW where you have a lot more color data and a lot wider bandwidth than you're going to be able to do that if you're shooting H.265, H.264, any of the normal like mirrorless camera formats. You're going to struggle more in the color grade because you can't push them as far, right? Like if you went out and you shot that with a 5D Mark II, 5D Mark II is a great camera. Nobody's really shot it in 10 years, but that's why I picked it as an example. I don't want to trash on anybody current, but like, you know, it's an H.264 camera. So when you're dealing with stuff that's outside the right color temperature, when you start to push it around, it gets so noisy and it starts to artifact and it starts to look really bad. Whereas a raw camera, you can start to push those colors around in post and get them much closer to something that feels flattering. And that shows up a lot. So it's a nice I mean, low, it's a good low budget tool, essentially, to have it I mean, it's, raw. It's weird because initially raw seemed like one of those things that only the big productions could afford, but actually the bigger production you are, the more control you have over things. Yeah, exactly. The less benefit you're getting where it's like when you're on that indie show where you're like, you know, I've worked on jobs that were big enough. We went in and we rebulbed the whole location. We showed up the day before and we replaced all the bulbs in the location to be what we wanted. I've also worked on jobs where we showed up and it was a grocery store and there was no way they were going to let us rebulb. And it was like, all right, you're dealing with whatever the lights are in the grocery store and you're balancing your floor lights to match it. And those are the situations where you really want raw to be able to get the most out of those light sources that aren't necessarily movie light sources. And in reality, there's very few times all the streetlights match. Like you'll go to a subdivision that was all built at one time and all the streetlights might match. But a lot of times, Hmm. even then, all of them will have matched originally, but then they'll replace when a bulb dies, they'll replace it with a new one. That's a different color. You see that all the time. But like if you're shooting in the burbs, like one parking lot will be one color light. The next parking lot will be another color light. The location we shot this in, it's all one space, the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And I counted at least three different streetlight colors, depending upon like what section had been renovated when. And that's normal. Like that's no fault. I love the Navy Yard, but like that's just life. 
And so having that flexibility of raw in a small package is where sort of the Pocket 6K comes to fruition, where its benefits are really felt. Because there are other cameras that are just as small, or smaller, actually. Pocket 6K is kind of big. My one big criticism of the camera is I think they should take the word pocket out of the name because it doesn't really fit in your pocket unless it's like a big parka. They should call it the parka 6K. Um, (laughs) Free advice, black magic. But, you know, all of those other cameras, because of patent restrictions, can't shoot internal RAW. If you're out on an A7S III and you want to shoot RAW, you have to go out to an Atomos. Pretty much any other camera at this price point, you have to go out to an Atomos. You can get a Komodo, but that's three times as much as the pocket 6K. So, but instead of doing a night walk and talk for this shoot, because... I don't know, Night Walk and Talk doesn't seem very YouTube-y, like, unless the acting is great and like the... So instead, I went on Instagram and I found a bunch of kids doing wheelie stunts on Instagram on dirt bikes. And they were down and came out and did a bunch of wheelie stunts on dirt bikes in the Navy Yard. It was a lot of fun. But all the concepts are there. So when you book that Night Walk and Talk, you can really have, like, hopefully there's some key lessons and takeaways for like, oh, I might want to do this. I might want to do that. I might want to rig a light on the camera. These are the things I might want to do but hopefully it's more fun to learn while watching people do wheelies than it is watching like a father and son have an emotional heart to heart, which isn't necessarily, you know, that tends to work better in the context of an overall plot, but not necessarily be as engaging as like pure. Yeah. So, so the, there, there are other situations besides for like a night walk and talk though, where being able to, shoot raw and take full advantage of like, for example, going into a location where the bulbs don't match, you know, like where the colors are all off and you don't have time or art department isn't available to make changes and switches and all of that. There's lots of circumstances where this exact same, uh, qual these exact same qualities become applicable, right? Yeah. I mean, it's most situations where you're dealing with artificial light, you can't control, right? Like if you're, on a beach day exterior and all of the light is coming from the sun and it's all, and it's a cloudy day, say, so it's all softened by the clouds. The difference between a raw and a non-raw image is not going to be as huge. The raw might give you a little more latitude, but because it's all the same color temperature and if you color temperature your camera correctly, you're not going to be pushing it around very far in post. You're not going to get a ton out of a raw image. You might get a little more latitude depending upon the camera, but not a, you know, not a dramatic night and day image, if it's an overcast day, if it's a super sunny day, the extra latitude will help. But it's all these other situations we run into as filmmakers where we're like shooting in a grocery store, shooting night exteriors on the streets, shooting any of these situations where we're, or, you know, the classic, I'm inside on a sunny day and we've got this cool light coming in the windows and all of the lights inside are warm. Less of an issue lately because people don't have tungsten lamps anymore, but there are still some people Hmm. you meet who will have older tungsten lamps in their house because they like it and they hate those new LEDs and you you will run into that. And if you have those mixed color temperature sources, raw just gives you so much more flexibility to shift those things around in post. Cool. And the video, which will be on nofilmschool.com this week, will demonstrate all of this. And, the, and of course, show the wheelie boy guys doing their thing. Yeah, they're really great. I mean, the other big takeaway for me is that Instagram casting, I mean, I know everybody else has been doing this for like five years. I know you guys are all ahead of me on Instagram casting, but this is literally the first time on any project I've just been like scoping out on Instagram and then being like messaging people on Instagram and being like, you're great. Can we shoot together? And it makes me feel like such a sketchy human being. Like it just seems like such a like, like, cause so many people must be sketchily doing it. Right. 
And I want, you know, so like my initial message is like, <laughs> I'm a real filmmaker. Here's my website. This is the platform it's going on. It's really like, it's a real thing. I'm not like. So important. Yeah. 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 You got to have, um, you got to demonstrate your legitimacy. Have you done Instagram casting before, Kath? No, I've done like street casting where I'll just like go up to people and be like, hey, do you want to be in a movie? Um, which <laughs> also feels kind of equally sketchy, but like I know that like Andrea Arnold did it for like her uh, road trip movie, so I feel okay about it. How did it work out for you? That must was, be so weird to hear from someone, by the way. You're standing on the street and someone comes up to you and you're like, hey, want to be in a movie? It, it, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> It actually worked out really well. Like for one of my short films, I managed to get three or four people that I had just met randomly, like at a bowling alley to come out. And I was like, it was from my, it was in my hometown. So I was like, okay, where'd you guys go to school? Cool. I went there too. Like we have that connection already. Like I demonstrated just like that. I'm a legitimate filmmaker, gave them my website, of course, and stuff like that. And then a few people were like, yeah, I'll come. And uh, it was great. It was, yeah, I would de- I would definitely do that again. Yeah, have not, I have also not say, tried Instagram casting yet, but apparently it is a thing. They were very they were way more savvy to it than I were. I mean, they're all like you know around twenty years old. They're all young, but they were all like you know one of them has like thirty thousand followers, and they were all like, okay, so who's the brand who's sponsoring it? Will they also be tagging us in their Insta posts? <laughs> like you know, and I had to reach out to Black Magic, and Black Magic was like, actually, no, we won't do that. And they were like, that's fine as long as you tag us in your posts, it's okay. But make sure you tag us in the YouTube script. And I was like, you guys are people are approaching you for collaboration all the time. You know how this works. You know the game. Oh, yeah. So it is a. It was a very. It was an interesting new experience. I mean, honestly, I have to say it was really great. I look to do. As we do more of these educational things, I think like finding people who do inherently cool stuff already to collaborate with and like getting outside of like traditional gatekeeper systems is like a really, you know, you could try and find an actor who already knows how to do BMX stunts, or you could just find the people who love doing BMX stunts all the time. They're constantly posting video of themselves doing it for the sheer joy of it. And like those people are fun. It was really great. Yeah. I know a guy who was just able to parlay, like able to get a branded piece sponsored by Specialized because he was like, hey, I like became friends with this cyclist who's super cool on like Native American reservation and you guys should do a piece about him. And they were like, hell yeah, here's a bunch of money. Smart. Very smart. Yeah. So that video coming out soon. And if you are a freelance DP or if you're a freelance director who wants to understand why you just wrote this script that's like a five-page dialogue scene walking through the streets at night and you want to know why the DP is like, this is going to cost us a lot of money, check out the video. Mm-hmm. It is even with a raw camera and all the new tech, you still want lights. You still need like lights on the characters' faces in order to make it work. Although this stuff came out super cool. I was very, I'm very impressed with that 6K Pro. It's kind of crazy how good it is in low light and raw in such a small package. All right. The next thing we were going to talk about for Black Magic Week is 12K because there's still a lot of confusion around like 12K. I still run into people conversationally who say things like, who's ever going to need 12K? Which, like, I'm old enough to remember in 2008 when people were like, who's ever going to need 4K? And so I wanted to talk a little bit and, like, have sort of a conversation with people about, not just, like, me blathering on, you know, resolutions and what's going on with them and why the 12K sort of makes sense as 12K. And 
the first concept I, I sort of wanted to talk about and like what I think everybody should understand about that. And the first thing I think everybody should understand about that is that there are delivery formats and then there's capture formats and they haven't been the same resolution in a while and they're never going to be the same resolution again. Like pretty much after 2008, when we were all delivering 1920 by 1080 files and we started shooting red, which shot 4K and Alexa at 2.5K, we're always, always going to shoot cameras that are higher resolution than the final deliverable. And there's a bunch of reasons for this. There's like highly technical reasons, like the debayering you have to do to get an image out of them. But there's also like, even if you're not like taking a wide shot and punching in for a close up, which is usually too much, the ability to like punch in 5% and get rid of a boom pole or a shadow or punch in 8% and do a little image stabilization. Like those benefits are so great that it's worth it to have a little bit of extra resolution. Like most DPs and directors still shoot all the coverage they were planning on shooting. I remember when the red first came out, you saw a bunch of directors that were like, all right, well, I guess I'm not shooting close-ups anymore. I'll just shoot my wide and pull my close-up out of it. When you try and do that, it looks really bad. Like shoot your wide shot, shoot your close-up. You also get a variety of performances that way that can help you in your edit. But if your close-up isn't quite close enough, you can punch in a little more and get a little extra out of it. Yeah, I can sp- I can speak to some of that because my experience feature filmmaking when I think it was fairly early on in the red had a couple reds that we used and the fact that it was 4K seemed like well we really don't need that. We're not finishing that like it doesn't matter but we shot it anyway. And we shot it like we would have shot no matter what. But because we shot in 2 weeks a full feature film basically on a low budget and you know there was a lot speaking of talking about night scenes and lack of lighting and all, every kind of limitation. What we found in the edit was, yeah, we were constantly sanding the edges of the frame because, oh, that's a little like, maybe we can crop just a tiny bit or it shakes a little bit there or this the camera op was inexperienced or, you know, there were so many opportunities to clean up what was done in a hurry on the cheap and make it look actually pretty decent, you know, in its final finished size. And I think that that's why I went from being a 4K, like, I don't get why, to being a, oh, it absolutely makes, it makes filmmaking at that level more accessible to more people because you can do a lot in post, (laughs) fix it in post. But what I guess where my questions come in is sort of like, once you get to 12K, and the Blackmagic 12K release was a big deal, and we should talk about that camera. You know, there's just so much, it feels like so much more than you were going to need. And who is going to shoot, I guess my question is like, what? who's going to shoot on that and why? Well, the fun thing about that particular 12K camera is that it shoots really easily in the old Ks as well. Like with that original red that we're both talking about, if I'm shooting 4K and I need to switch to 2K to go slow-mo, I have to put on wider lenses. Like it used to be because it goes down to like a tiny little window in the sensor. So if you were going to shoot right. normal speed, you'd have to have normal lenses. But then if you want to shoot slow-mo, you'd have to rent super 16, super wide lenses. So it, it, there was actually a price spike for a while for these super wide, super 16 lenses that you'd have to rent in addition, or you'd have to buy if you were a buyer, in addition in order to shoot slow-mo. The fun thing about the 12K is that it shoots 12K, but it can also shoot 4K full sensor. So like, I have a couple doc projects coming up. I don't know if I'll shoot them on the 12K or the 6K. I'm sort of debating. But like, 
if I shot on the 12K, but I know, okay, there's a doc, it's an interview. I'm not going to need, I'm running two cameras. I'm not going to need a whole lot of stabilization because I'm on a tripod. I could shoot this interview in 4K because I don't need to waste the the hard drive space of 12K. But then I'm going out and I'm shooting run and gun on the street. I shoot that 12K because the extra hard drive space is worth the tools I get in posts. So it's sort of a new way of thinking about it because you don't window the sensor when the resolution changes. You know, the big thing for me is I think you'll see the 12K used a lot on indie features because an indie feature, finding the extra money for the hard drive space is usually a small part of your budget. You usually have big mm-hmm. ambitions of getting a theatrical release. You usually want everything you can get out of the image you possibly can. But then you take the same camera body and you put it in 6K mode for when you book a doc project or a corporate project or an industrial or something like that. And you're using the same camera for both jobs without having to spend insane hard drive money shooting 12K for hours and hours and hours and hours of interview footage. So you get sort of like a nice like double combination, best of both worlds thing in a way that I think is sort of interesting. It's also really interesting because, you know, it changes our approach to things. Like I remember reading all these interviews about how Stanley Kubrick worked when I was young and how he would do 90 takes in order to make sure he had the perfect dolly move of a shot. And it's like, first off, seldom do we have those budgets anymore. But secondly, like if the actor's performance is great in take 11 and there's a slight dolly bump, it's so much easier to fix a slight dolly bump in posts now yeah. You don't need to do another 70 takes to fix that slight dolly bump if you can just push in a little bit and smooth it out in post, which we do all the time. So, Isn't it those- funny, though, how it used to be it was cost to do. There was a time when doing so many takes was impossible because film costs money. So every time you roll, you're spending money. But on the other hand, once and so video, the whole thing was video slash digital. It's not film. There's no cost to the stock. So just keep rolling, roll everything. Like you can do, you can have it all. But then hard drive space became a premium because the size of the files was so huge. And then that becomes expensive. I just think it's interesting that it's cycled back. Yeah. I had some friends who worked on a big Adam Sandler movie in like 2006, 2007, which was like in that let's roll on everything. And apparently from call time till cut for 12 hours every day, the cameras were just on. (laughs) because <laughs> like the editors, so right? sad the for the editor yeah assistant know, editor, oh my really. gosh <laughs> yeah but it's like you know you never knew when adam was gonna like wander through set and like he's not even doing an official <laughs> rehearsal he's just like crossing set to go to craft services and then has an inspiration and does a little funny gag and walks on and they wanted to make sure they got it <laughs> which is like but like that was a moment in time that was like nobody that i hear about is doing that today that was a specific moment when digital was new, we were figuring out our relationship to it. Tape was cheap. This was a tape show. This was early Genesis. So it was standard definition tape, which isn't that much to store. It's not like they were rolling four 12K cameras, which is much more hard drive space to store. And my suspicion is that they were doing what's called a paper edit, which means, you know, when you're on a reality TV show, a reality TV show will have like eight cameras running all day long, but there's a field producer running around with a notepad who's constantly writing down like, ooh, this hour is boring. Or like, ooh, yeah. there, was a, there was a wine toss this moment or whatever. And they oh, the only... Toss. Well, it's a signature <laughs> moment, yes, right? The yeah, wine yeah I know. I just... Uh, yes. So they would only ever watch the good bit. Like the editors, everything else never got watched. The editors used the paper edit yeah. that happened on set to start their editorial process. And I have to imagine that's how those 
early digital things where they were like, oh, digital's cheap. Just leave the camera on. That, that has to be how it went. Although now I don't know really anybody who still does that. I think that was like a moment of insanity. And even on big productions, like, oh, there's actually something really nice about the energy of like, all right, we're all going to focus our energy. We're going to roll the cameras. We're going to do a thing. We're going to stop. Camera's going to be off. And we're going to like reset. I think that's, I don't know, the pro- productions I'm around still operate like that. Maybe somebody out there is like, I'm going to shoot the whole thing and never miss a moment. It's funny. I remember shooting some film and we kept a notepad because we didn't want to waste anything, but we also wanted to be so... We, I mean, it was a ver- it was indie, so we didn't have like a script supervisor. Unfortunately, it was our version of that, basically. But we had somebody write down after every take, like what the director said about it. Like if there was any issue on sound, like we just had a log we kept basically for every single take. Be- and it wasn't because we were rolling all the time. It was just because we were like trying to be as as on top of it and organized as possible. And we didn't want to print everything either. But that's a whole other story. Oh, printing. Yeah, I only ever worked on one show where they had the budget to print all the dailies. And that was great. But even by the time we did it, that was like 2006. And it was great. We went to the theater. We watched the dailies. It was awesome. Even then, I was like, this seems a bit much. But (laughs) I was like, if you guys are going to do it, I'm not going to pass up on the opportunity to get to go to film print dailies in 2006, which was well after most other productions were doing film print dailies. And for context, what that means is you wouldn't print every single take because you knew it was bad. So you wouldn't spend the money to actually print if if you wrote in the log, like, oh, there was a screw up on that take. There's no way we can use it. We're not printing it, which is why you would have heard cut print because they would have wanted them to know you definitely print that take. Nobody yeah. says that stuff anymore. So yeah, those were print. those would be circle takes. So they would have circled the take on the the scripty would have circled that take and then call report, and you would only actually make a print of the circled takes. And to be clear, the job I did that printed all dailies only printed circle takes. I never shot a job where we printed everything, because come on. Yeah. I don't know who got to do that, but very few people ever printed all of You just printed circle takes and maybe a few others. But like, if you knew the take was bad, why, why bother keeping it? Regardless, back to the 12K, the other thing that I think is really interesting about where we are in technology is that when I... I'm going to, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I'm going to keep saying it. I think 4K might be the last broadcast deliverable we ever do. Like, you know, I'm still regularly delivering 1920 by 1080 to networks. Like that is still the delivery format. 4K TVs exist. 8K TVs don't exist. But like most 4K TVs only get 1080p over cable. Like you're watching live sports, it's almost always 1080p. And most people can't tell the difference between 1080p and 4K. But HDR, that's a bigger jump. Well, HDR is a much bigger jump. Right, in color. But like I have a 4K TV. I think the only thing my 4K TV does that's like taking advantage is like gaming, right? Is that like, isn't that something where it's like a native, like, okay, yeah, we're really building this for for this. But I just want to comment and I wonder what Joe and Kath think about experience about this or memories and yours too, Charles. But one of the reasons I think you're right, at least you will be right for a long time still, is do you all remember how weird it was when you had to get people, when the world was trying to get people to go from their standard deaf TVs to their HD TVs? And there were so many people who didn't want to do it that they started putting at or just were resistant to the idea that networks started putting like PSAs on that were like, hey, pretty soon, you're going to have to get another TV because we're not going to broadcast this old thing that you still like. Do you remember that stuff? 
Am I, I the only one? <laughs> is I feel like there. What I remember is a moment when, like, a lot of cinematographers were very upset because what they were talking about was using. I don't know if it was an HD a format or another format that was just too crystal clear and made it like very distracting. Is that what you're talking about, George? Or is it something else? No, it was that a lot of people at home, probably older people mostly, still had standard definition televisions and still wanted to get all their channels in standard depth, like cable and, and whatever, and, and network TV. And a lot of the ch- stations were like, we're not going to, you're not going to be able to see what we're broadcasting it. <laughs> You're going to have to switch to a T because we're not going to send that to you. And they were warning people to like, go get, you know, get a new TV. Basically. But to what you were talking about, Kath, that was a thing when HD first came around where they had to rebuild the sets to all of the sitcoms because all of a sudden the higher resolution, the sets looked worse. Oh, and I did that, not know like, that was part of it. There were like new makeup guides that went out on how to change the makeup for like news anchors and whatnot. And then the other thing we went through is that in the beginning of digital, we didn't actually have lenses designed for digital. We had something called the DigiPrimes from Zeiss. And I love Zeiss, but I'm about to make fun of Zeiss. I still shoot the Zeiss Super Speed sometimes. The Zeiss DigiPrimes are called DigiPrimes, but they were just Master Primes rehoused for digital with a different lens mount. And they were designed for film first. And film has an inherent softness to it. So like the Master Primes, which I love in film, the inherent sharpness of the Master Primes complements really well with the softness of film. They go together to create this very nice image. And in fact, the master primes also have a lot of micro contrast built in. So it's not just about like the contrast from the top to the bottom. It's like even in midtone contrast, like building up that contrast so that the in-focus areas look really sharp. What happened in the beginning of shooting digital cinematography is we had these incredibly sharp cameras and then people were pairing them with these modern lenses, like they were either running Master Primes, they were getting Zeiss Digi Primes, and those lenses designed for film looked like shit on digital. Like, people just looked bad. Every flaw in your face, magnified a hundred times, like it just looked unpleasant in the beginning, which is why one of the first, I remember the first thing I saw shot on digital that looked good, and I was like, ooh, and I read the article behind it. It was a commercial that had shot on Lomo Anamorphics, and that was the explosion of vintage glass. Because the secret to the beginning of the digital revolution looking good was going out and getting vintage glass that looked good on your digital camera. So the combination of vintage glass with modern a digital sensor could actually create an image that would look quite nice. Or you can go in in post and you can step on the image a little bit. Although most people prefer to do it optically. A lot of people also would use like diffusion filters in the beginning to try and take some of that digital edge off. Part of what changed in the last 10 years is our tastes have changed a little bit. Like the super sharp images don't look as bad to us as they did because now we're more used to it. Part of it's also lens design has come a long way, like the Zeiss Signature Primes. I mean, no, the Airy Signature Primes are like just supposed to be shot on digital. They're like the lens mount. There is no film camera with an LPL mount. Those lenses are only LPL. They are digital lenses. They're designed to look the right amount of sharpness paired to an Alexa 4K sensor. And, you know, even our lenses that theoretically could go back and forth are a little bit more tuned towards digital and tend to have like a little bit of like softy, creamy, like it's crisp, but it's not so crisp. So it's really like it's a pairing thing that took a while. Two, two things. One, 
I am often commenting to anyone within earshot about how much better I think celluloid looks whenever I see it. I'm a, I'm, it's just the way I am. I love the digital image. Like I love what you can do with it. That's mostly what I've shot on. But every once in a while, you'll see, you know, you'll watch an old movie or you'll see a YouTube clip that's got something old in it. Or you'll just, you know, if you're re- in rare occasion, you'll go to a theater and you'll see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood projected. And I'm the kind of person who's just like, oh, I love it. Like it's like, and people will tell me things. People say things like, you're like one of those, you know, people who claims that things sound different on uh, vinyl than they do like off off your computer or whatever. I don't think it's anywhere near as similar. I think the difference is so much more obvious than it is when it's like audio difference. Is that just because of my own bias? Is that just because it's the medium I'm familiar with? Or do you do you guys feel like it's that? Do you feel like you can't tell the difference? You mentioned, Charles, some people couldn't tell the difference between standard and HD. Most people won't be able to see the difference when you go up to 4K or whatever. Do, are, do you really think that people can't immediately feel the difference between these things? Oh my gosh. No. Yeah, there's a total difference. And I will say that only because last week I went to a pride screening of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which is not a good movie, but it looks <laughs> it looks so good just because it was shot on film. Like it's a gorgeous movie. Like the colors look amazing. And it just looks like so much better of a film than it is just because of the way it was shot and the way it looks now. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of where I am in that I will see things that didn't wow me from the time. But I think what Charles started with saying, which was that you had to control every element on, you couldn't change your colors later. You couldn't punch in. You couldn't sand the edges off. So you just had to get so much more right initially that Mm -hmm. visually you had to be locked in. You had to be buttoned up. And I do think that that difference is, you know, it's a difference between, uh, it's a big, I think it's a big difference. I do think you can see the difference. But yeah, I mean, people say like, nah, you're just being ridiculous. No, I mean, I think you could totally still see the difference. I think you could, if you worked very hard to trick people, like, I think if you set out with a digital production and you were like, I'm going to do everything I can to make people think it's a film production, you could build a post-production pipeline that would mimic film. And I think you could get close to the point that everything, everyone short of a DP would be like, yeah, you shot film. Like, there's you put cigarette burns in, you put a little scratch in, you put a little noise in, you, like, sure. you, you put in, like, I think you could do that. But I think for the most part, yeah, there's absolutely difference. I mean, watch Tenet, like... I haven't seen anything digitally captured that looked like Tenet looked. Right. And I thought Tenet looked magnificent. What I'm saying, I think people could see the difference between standard definition and HD quite a bit. I think the difference between HD and Ultra HD is much smaller. Like I work where I there's see. a 20-foot yes. screen. And the difference yes. between HD and Ultra HD is so small. Even on a 20-foot screen, and I'll be in a room with like 20 film students, and I'll switch between the two signals, and they won't be able to see a big difference. That like we will get to 4K... But I think 8K will probably never happen at a big broadcast level where it's getting streamed all over our pipes because the files will be so big and the cost of rolling it out will be so much that it won't be worth it. I do think HDR 
will end up being a big deal because HDR, you can totally, when you switch between the standard brightness range signal and an HDR signal, it is like, oh, wow, that is a wildly different thing, HDR. And properly mannered, uh, mastered HDR, like Sean the Sheep Farmageddon, which is like one of the best HDR masters I've seen. Like when you watch Sean the Sheep Farmageddon in HDR, you're like, yep, that is dramatically different than standard depth, than standard dynamic range. Which and is HDR why is, a, is a color range. It's a brightness, brightness range, range more than a color yeah. range. You get a little extra color range, but it's really just the brightest brights are brighter. The darkness, right. the darks stay in the same place, but your brightest brights are brighter, which give you a better, a wider brightness gamut. And actually, it's such a big part of the transition that the 12K camera, if you look at the side of the Blackmagic 12K, to bring it back to the theme of the episode, the side of the 12K <laughs> camera says 12K HDR. Like, yeah. I think Blackmagic is acknowledging that like the HDR part is at least as important to them as the 12K part. And that the camera is designed to capture la- images of wide enough latitude to enable an HDR master. I don't remember Nightmare on Elm Street 2 well enough to know if it's good or not. I do want to just give a plug for Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. as being <gasps> it's like so it's, a, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. No one in the audience should think we're anti-Nightmare on Elm Street on this podcast. Oh, three no, is no, 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 no. No, and I'll happily watch Nightmare on Elm Street 2. I watched it twice like last week, but I was just I in the bigger screening, I just was kind of stunned at how like, oh wow, this is a real movie. And I feel like today it would have been like George said, rushed or it just wouldn't have looked as good. Uh yeah, it, it it's a gorgeous looking film still. <laughs> what it was for me, or one of the moments for me, was I showed my younger one of my kids a trailer for the original not the original like cartoon, but the uh, Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring from 2000. Now it feels like a hundred million years ago, but, or 2001 or something. And I was like, oh my God, it's film. Because a movie like that, I wasn't expecting to go back in time and see like one of these big tentpole, like fantasy epic, you know, like that's something where almost always they would, <laughs> like film is for art films now, exclu- almost exclusively tenant, but like you don't expect special effects and stuff. And, and, and I still, even though it's 20 years ago, I still think of that movie as being part of a modern era, sort of. So even though it's definitely not. So when I saw the trailer and I was like, it's film, I was like, oh my God, it's crazy. Yeah. But those films actually look good on film. Whereas the Hobbit on digital. Yes. No, exactly. That whole thing with the, yes, no, they look great. There's a lot of reasons. Yeah, they look great. And film works for them and film, you know, it's, I'm not trying to say film is, is categorically better. There's so many beautiful digital images. There's been so much beautiful digital cinematography that's absolutely blown me away. It's just a different medium. You know, that's, that's all. And I think it's very, very different. And so as we talk about these things and we talk about there being like a minor difference between maybe visibly between 2K, 4K, and then 4K and 8K. I still think, yeah, I think that there are sometimes quite quite visible differences. Yeah, I think there's there's an inherent nostalgia built in, like even outside of personal bias. It's just like when you put on a record and you hear the scratches, <clears throat> it brings yeah. out it, like an emotional response. Yeah. I mean, does anyone think there will be, cause I mean, look, we know there's people out there who like shooting stuff on VHS or mini DV cause they have a look to them. And to me, the look of VHS was always the look of, of ugliness, but now there is a weird quaint beauty to it. And I wonder if someone will feel that way about 
2K one day or 4K. <laughs> like 4K is so quaint in its limited. You know, like, no, it's just I happening. Mean, it's happening right now. I just got an email from someone saying I'm really trying to track down a Grass Valley Group Viper or a Panavision Genesis, which are these two cameras that were like very big in 2005, 2006. Do you have any leads on them? And I was like, Why would you want to shoot those two cameras? Like what possible, (laughs) like shoot a modern digital camera and create a lot. And they were like, nope, it has to be this Grass Valley Group Viper, which is what they shot like Collateral and Zodiac on. And like, yeah, no, it's, it's here. People are like already nostalgic about 2006. And actually I had a student who's like, I really need to shoot the HVX 2200, which is like, I shot a feature film on the HVX 200 in 2006. Like on the P2 cards? Is that on the, the P2 that was- cards. <laughs> the first time we hired a DIT, that we didn't even call them a DIT yet, but they were like two people in a minivan downloading the P2 cards. They were like, we think this might be the future. We think we built a business here, downloading cards on film shoots. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah. We, there's another, there's an interview I did with someone who's been around Black Magic and since the very beginning, and he talked a lot about the invention of the DIT and the cards, et cetera. And that interview is also from this week on the podcast. So I just want to let people know if you want to know more about that, it's really interesting. But I, you're right. Collateral, I remember seeing it and being like, this is weird. It's got its own look. It's its own medium. Like <laughs> it like lived somewhere between video and film where you were like, yeah. what is this thing? You know? Yeah. The last thing I want to say about the Blackmagic 12K though, the thing that I think everyone doesn't talk about enough the way it does HDR is that half of its pixels are clear. So on every camera, like your, your, your sensor has like red pixels, green pixels, blue pixels that are sensitive to different wavelengths of light, right? 6,000 of the pixels in the 12K are colored, but 6,000 of them are clear pixels, which means they have no filter on them. And those filters eat light, right? The same way if you put like a filter in front of a light, it eats up light, it decreases light intensity. So by having 6,000 clear pixels, the camera is able to be more sensitive in low light, which is how it can call itself an HDR camera. Because, you know, I did a bunch of testing when the 12K first came out, and it's got like legitimately six to seven stops of overexposure, but it also has like seven to eight stops of underexposure. It is a 13 to 14 stop camera, hands down, which usually when you read 14 stops for a camera, it's just marketing and you test it and it's like 11 or 12. But like their marketing says 14 stops, and I believe it, especially in underexposure. Because of those clear pixels. Because what happens with a lot of cameras when they get high resolution is pixels get smaller and smaller and smaller. And the smaller the pixel, the less sensitive it is in low light. So when the, that is how they can really claim to be like an HDR, like really capturing a super wide latitude range in the camera. I think that's the bigger, like for me, that's the bigger revolution of the 12K than necessarily the, the 12K. Clear pixels, huh? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. All right, Ashton Film School this week. Should I bother learning Fusion and Fairlight? Maybe. So let's start. Can we just start by pretend pretend for a second we don't know what Fair, Fairlight and Fusion are? I do not know what Fairlight and Fusion are, so great. <laughs> I, was being, I was being facetious. <laughs> yeah. Just pretend that we don't use those things. Okay, so a little bit of history. Blackmagic started as a company that made hardware. They make, uh, like, you know, the the original thing they got famous for is video output cards. So you have a computer and you need a video signal to get out to a monitor in order to evaluate the image properly. They made those cards, video interface cards. And AJA made them too, but Blackmagic and AJA were like the two big ones of the time. And they made enough money making those that they bought DaVinci Resolve, which was a software 
Originally, DaVinci made software hardware combos, Resolve was software only, that was color grading software that was like, you know, it's the kind of thing where there's no set price. Hundreds of thousands of dollars is the best way to think about it. Like, you couldn't just go to the website and download it. You had to like work with someone in sales and you had to do an install. And like the cheapest I was ever around a DaVinci install was like a hundred grand. And like the company I was working with when they did that felt like they'd figured out like a really like, wow, we're going to undercut everybody doing this all for like a hundred grand. You know, when it first came out, it was like a million. Blackmagic bought them and released the software as Blackmagic DaVinci Resolve for a thousand bucks. And the reason they could do this is they were making money selling hardware. And they were like, well, nobody, you know, software shouldn't be as expensive anymore. We'll release the software. People will buy our hardware. Away we go. And then within a couple of years, they lowered the price to like $2.99 for studio and free for everybody else. And again, they're doing that because in order to use the software with like a professional monitor, you need the hardware interface. So that's where they make their money and you've got the software. It started as just color grading only. And then they started building out tools for edit so that you could edit and color grade in the same piece of software. You know, if you're other than that, if you're like, let's say you're editing in Premiere, you'd have to do a round trip to Resolve. Or if you're cutting in Final Cut Pro or Avid, you have to round trip over to Resolve to color. They've worked really hard to make that round trip really simple, but it's still extra work. You know what I mean? I, you, I always used to say, you know, a short film, you want to budget a day, a feature, you want to budget a couple days to like move your project over into color grading, which is like more time you're paying people to do stuff. And like, God help you if you like color grade your movie and then you want to go make picture changes. Like, do you go back to the ungraded footage and then bring it back over into Resolve again? Or do you color, do you make new edits to the color graded footage? And like, what happens if you bring in some ungraded dailies to mix with your color graded masters? It's a mess. So Blackmagic made it so you can edit in Resolve and color grade in Resolve with no round trip. You can just go back and forth between the timelines. It's super slick. And then Blackmagic, after having, you know, buying Resolve went well. They bought two other pieces of software, Fusion and Fairlight. Fairlight's been around, both have been around since the 80s. Fairlight was really big as like a digital audio workstation, which is where you do all your sound design. And Fusion is like a 3D compositor. The best comparison for Fusion would be Nuke. It's like After Effects on steroids. And the best comparison for Fairlight is like Pro Tools. There's definitely stuff Pro Tools does that Fairlight doesn't do. But it's the goal that Blackmagic is doing with Resolve is a free piece of software in which you can do everything without ever leaving that piece of software. So you can like download your footage on set, edit it, color grade it, do all your VFX, both like two and a half D VFX, like After Effects, or like full 3D composites. Do your full sound design and then make all of your masters and never have that round trip step, you know, because the round trip step is work. It's labor. And if we can avoid it, it's great. It's also labor that locks you in in time. Like once you've handed over to sound and to color, you can't change your picture at all, which is great if you understand that. But so many people like do the handover to color and sound. And then like three months later, they're like, man, I really need to recut that scene. And that's a lot of work that is like a lot of handovers back and forth at that point. So having it all in one program ideally should make it that you can just go in and cut that scene and not lose all your color and sound and VFX work. But the reason why it's specifically like, should you learn Fusion and Fairlight is I think a lot of people open Resolve, which are is they, free. Are, I, oh, I mean, uh, yeah. Is this a fr- are they free like Resolve is? So they're all free if you pay for the upgrade to Studio, which is two ninety nine, and so far Got seems it. perpetual. Like I paid for Studio in twenty fourteen, and it still works. I bought my first Studio license in twenty twelve, although that stayed with the company when I left, and that one is still working. So nine years in, it seems you know it doesn't seem like there's been any upgrade required. 
they can't promise it'll last forever, but nine years is a pretty good run. You get some extra features, you get some extra resolutions, you get noise correction. The biggest thing you get out of studio is the ability to have a bunch of pieces of software work together in a shared environment. So like if you're a post house or a little production company and you want to have one person editing, one person doing color grading, one person doing sound design and one person doing VFX all at the same time on the same project, you need to go studio. It's great when it works. Like when you're in one of those properly, I teach in a facility like this where like while I'm teaching, you can be, I can bring up the project the student is working on. It's live on their machine. It's live on my machine. I can do stuff to it and then close it and they can go back to doing stuff on it. It's like really slick when it works. You have to buy studio for that. That makes sense. Like that's, it's a, it's a well, it's a well chosen barrier, I think, because you end up for the people who want that tool, $299 is a reasonable amount (laughs) to pay for it. If you are just a one person working at home on your laptop and you don't need that tool free, the free tool still does so much else that it, you know, you got to put a price barrier somewhere. And I think they chose the right point for it. But yeah, it's free. It's all included in the free resolve. If you download it now on Linux, Mac, or PC, it is just free. And so you can get a lot of use out of the free version if you're kind of a one mule team and you're trying to just like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to use DaVinci to cut. Like I own the, I bought the camera and it comes right. If you buy a camera with them, you get access. It comes with studio for free. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't even need to think about the upgrade then. No. And then you get everything. So the question then that comes up a lot is, should I learn Fusion in Fairlight? Here's the thing. If you are a young freelancer, you, you should still learn After Effects and Pro Tools because those are still going to be dominant tools. I think you can easily get away with saying, the only color tool I know is Resolve. I am still a freelance colorist with a couple of clients, and I've been a freelance colorist since 2008. I color graded one project in Scratch in like 2011. And Scratch is great. But then I just went right back to Resolve and Resolve Rules, and I don't know anything but Resolve, and I'm completely content with that. And I like write books about color and freelance with like big clients, like major car companies, and it's fine. Resolve is great for color. For if you're like, I'm 24 and I want to freelance in posts, unfortunately, After Effects is not going to go anywhere and Pro Tools is not going to go anywhere. And if you want to be, I know everything, those are tools you should know. However, Fairlight and Fusion are both free and getting increasingly sophisticated. And I think that there is there is an argument to be made that if you are already a Resolve user for edit and color, then you should go ahead and learn the tools that are there. Because while there's some things that might be a little bit faster in After Effects, and there's definitely some more power that you get out of certain Pro Tools features, once you pick up Fusion and Fairlight, and they're just part of your habit, you're going to be able to do more sophisticated things more quickly. There is an uphill, especially with Fusion. Fairlight is really tightly integrated. The visual design is well integrated. You can like you can load up your effects library natively. So every time you open it, your effects library is already there and you're like cutting straight from the library into your timeline. And like there's all sorts of slick stuff like that. Fusion still looks like fusion. Like Blackmagic made an interesting decision where because there's a lot of fusion users. There's a lot of VFX houses that just use fusion and have before Blackmagic bought it. So they were like, we're just gonna make it look the same it always has. So it's weird. You like click over the tab to Fusion and it just looks like a different piece of software. It works really well. Like you click back to your timeline and all of your work in Fusion is there and you don't have to like render it out or anything. It like renders in the background. And so like you're adding a cool slick 3D title and you go back to your timeline and it's all working. And that's great. But Fusion looks differently, acts differently. Like if you are thinking to yourself, ooh, Fusion's in Resolve, I should start using it. Give yourself two or three days to play with it first. 
don't assume the next job you book, you're going to be able to just pick it up as quickly. Like After Effects is the kind of program, like the first time I needed After Effects for something, I just opened it and, and sort of like clicked on a bunch of buttons so I could figure out what I needed to do. And an hour later, clicked render. That is not hmm. Fusion. <laughs> How, Fusion what's the, is, yeah, what's, what's the learning curve? Like, what do you think that, like, if the question is, should I learn? How long do you think it would take someone to learn the basics? I would say like, without if you a have class. a week, without a class, if you're working your way through the Fusion manual and you don't already know a 3D compositor, give yourself a week to learn the basics. The manual is great. The online tutorials are great. You can pick up things pretty quickly. There's some good YouTube tutorials and stuff like that. But give yourself a couple of days because it just works fundamentally differently. It's still node-based the way Resolve Color is, but the nodes work totally differently because it's a different program. There's a scripting language, which is super powerful and you can do cool stuff with it. But like, give yourself a minute. You should totally work through, if you're considering it, work through the online tutorials. They are well done and free. So Resolve often is, I feel like you, oh yeah, like these days with a client, like if you have a project, you're looking for an editor. This is my experience as a producer. And you just kind of try to find whatever, like, you know, sort of similar to buying cameras. You're like, well, what, what is the, what's the pool I'm choosing from and what do they use? So often I wonder how much for the freelancer, it's like, use what you use well and, you know, make sure you can deliver the best product possible in the time allowed and your ability to do multiple things. Like, I guess what I'm saying is how often is it like, hey, I have a a job, but I need you to be able to do it in this software. Does that come up a lot? Yeah, I think a lot of post houses, you see a lot of post house ads that are like, we work in Premiere, Premiere editors saw it. We work in, uh, and like Avid, Hmm. like if you're an Avid company, which like all the big TV houses are, all the big doc houses are, like there's still compelling reasons for Media Composer. They are all like, we would like you to apply with a Media Composer certification, please. You see see. inroads are made with this flexible software at the the edges, right? So the kind of clients that you'll get that don't care what you're hiring are when like a producer is hiring someone and is like, I want you to do edit and sound and... And I'm never going to visit you and it's remote. I'm going to send you footage. You can send it back. I don't care what you work in. That's where the software really grow. But if you're out there and you're like, I'm trying to get jobs at a post house, you're going to need to learn. Like, frankly, if you're out there and you're like, I want to work in a post house, you should know Media Composer, Resolve, Final Cut, and Premiere. You should know all four. Like, you just should. And of them, there's a free Resolve, there's a $300 Final Cut Pro. Right. If you want to pick up the gigs, you're just kind of like, I'll do what I do and build the real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if you're like small team producer, right? Like I imagine there's a lot of small team producers out there who are like going out, getting their own clients, doing the beginning to end on a project or just doing it all in Resolve. Why not? I mean, I have one client that I work with a lot who everything is Resolve because they do everything in-house and they're just like, why not? We do our color, like we, we, we do our color and resolve. And so we just built out from there to picture, they started in color and then moved into full post and like, they're working in fusion. They're doing the whole thing. Cause they're like, why not? It's free. It's on our own machines. It works. It does the job. So you are starting to see that, but it's, but, and I met that client because they specifically posted looking for people good at resolve. I wasn't able to change that client's mind. Interesting. So the answer is yes. Learn them. <laughs> I mean, it depends on where you are in your career. If you are like, I'm 35 and I already know how to do everything I want to do in Premiere, probably not. If you are like, I'm an undergrad and I want to make myself the most flexible possible when I graduate, you should learn them. If you're like, oh, I'm an independent director and I'm going to like make a project and drag it through my post myself, learn them. 
If you're like, I'm going to go out this summer and with $20,000, I'm going to shoot an amazing feature and get it through post on my own, learn them. The software is free and you can like push your head up the mountain to figure out what you need to do to make your projects amazing with this tool set. But like, if you're like, you know, yeah, if you're a mid-career postie, you probably don't need to add these to your tool set yet. Cool. All right. Well, I think we've done it. I think we're done. <laughs> Thanks, Charles. Well, thank you guys. I feel like I talk too much, but <laughs> no. I mean, you know, this is a, uh, this is you know, this was a kind of an ask the professor episode, so. <laughs> <laughs> tech professor episode. What's another name um, for pirate treasure? So, should we wrap it up? Yeah. All right. So, everybody plug their pluggables. I'm at charleshain.com or uh, charleshain on Instagram and Twitter. You can check out Salty Pirate or Angel's Perch on Amazon Prime. And whether you like them or not, give me five stars because let's fool the algorithm. So, I'm Kath Tolentino, filmmaker. You can see my work at katherinetolentino.com. And on Instagram, I'm at borderwoman.pictures. And I also have my short film Parachute, which is on Amaletto and Short of the Week. So Google it, check it out, and hope you like. Awesome. I'm Joe Light. I'm at Joe underscore Lightly on Twitter. Uh, give me a follow. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. And you can read about all of this and more at nofilmschool.com. Check out Black Magic Week. Check out the camera through post tag on nofilmschool.com. You can click on it in the show notes. It'll have all the Black Magic Week content. We have a ton that's been there. We had a contest. We will be announcing a winner who will get a camera. We also have podcast interviews this week. And we have the exciting video that Charles shot that we talked about with the Wheelie Boys. So check it out and ask us questions. Send us questions at editor at nofilmschool.com and we will answer them on this show. We love hearing from you. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Check us out on Instagram. And thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.